Welcome to the Nature Side Podcast. I'm your host, Justin Thomas. This is the fifth episode of the Nature Side Podcast, and following up on the last podcast, number four, where I was in a woodland and just doing an audio tour of the woodland. This time I'm in a prairie, just a little bit west of Springfield, Missouri, kind of southwest Missouri, unglaciated prairie country, and talking about some of the management issues surrounding prairies and just some of the ecological dynamics that make them amazing, beautiful places. As you listen, you might hear that I, I get a little emotional, but that's to be to be expected. I'm an emotional being, as, as is anyone, right? <laughs> a couple other notes about the audio in general. My dog is with me, Rosie, so you, you'll hear panting often in the background as she comes near the mic, and you, know, you might wonder what's going on, <laughs> what exactly is going on with all the panting. Um, but it's Rosie. I'll toss a picture of her up on the uh, blog as well. And I'll also put up pictures of the prairie that I'm at and, and like I did with the, with the woodland tour in episode four. I'll put up some pictures and some descriptions when I talk about Carex Abdita, Carex Umbelita in the podcast. I'll have a picture of that and some of the some of the scenery and some of the more interesting plants that I encountered along the way. Those will be on the Nature Side blog, which is at thevasculum.blogspot.com. Again, that's thevasculum.blogspot.com. Oh, and lastly, it got a little windy. I was out on the prairie. The wind was blowing. I, I did a pretty decent job, I think, of shielding the the noise. But there are a few spots where there's, a, there's 10, 15, 20 seconds of interference. When you encounter those, don't get too frustrated. They're, they're minimal, and they, they go as quickly as they come. And a few other tidbits about nature site in general. We got uh, some interesting workshops coming up later this fall or late late summer, early fall. Um, assuming that COVID nineteen issues are alleviated by then, if if they aren't, we'll we'll cancel those or or put them online. I think we'll, I think we may just have to do what everybody's doing and and live our lives on the internet. I guess. But there's a couple good workshops. One of which is called Nature as Reality, and it's it's sort of a, it's a rendition of taking physics, even like quantum physics and consciousness and psychology and blending that with ecology and botany and natural landscapes, that confluence to that consilience of those concepts where they come together, I think really heightens the awareness and appreciation of those three things that are often treated as, as reduction in our reductionist scientific approach to things, we often we often talk about physics, psychology, and ecology as independent things. But when we put them all together, we kind of see that they're a intertwined and beautifully blended assembly of things that are they're not really different from each other. It's kind of one thing. And seeing seeing the confluence of all three of those really helps and then jerry wilhelm the author of plans of the chicago region co-author of flora the chicago region he and i kind of we've been friends for a while we're kind of on the same wavelength in terms of this this uh how do we better incorporate human behavior and human mindsets and perceptions how do we better incorporate those into a societal appreciation of nature as it really is? Not sort of the the Ranger Rick uh, trials of life. You'll have to forgive me, but I, I often refer to it as nature porn. Instead, looking at what is really going on with nature. You know, what is not, not the showy, flashy, over-the-topness of nature, but the depth of real nature and how fascinating that is the 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 elements of nature that are intellectually and internally amazing rather than visually amazing Uh, so jerry and i are joining forces together for a two-day workshop in the chicago region and we're entitling that workshop ecesis the process of coming home and it's all about that process of, of the human animal esizing into its landscape, finding its its habitat and a sustainable existence 
and what that means, what that would look like. And and it's going to be a two-day workshop. It's going to be, again, the, the sort of culmination, confluence of physics. It's all science-based, not off on the spiritual end, but again, not close to that, if that's how people want to interpret things. But if this is very science-based, it's physics, it's psychology, it's sociology, and it's ecology, bringing those together into a an understanding and realizing in the end that they are more or less the same thing and what that what that means for the human condition and how we can better perceive ourselves through actually applying our sciences. But anyway, that'll be a two-day workshop. It's in the Chicago region. Uh, you can find out more information about it at Conservation Research Institute. They have a website. I think it's conservationresearchinstitute.org. That's where the the flyer for the workshop is. If you wanna wanna check that out, uh, that's in September, September fifth and sixth, I believe. If that doesn't work because of the COVID nineteen thing, which is probably likely, I, I'm sad to say, then Jerry and I will have to we'll have to get together and and put it into a video form or something because we really want to do this and we're we're doing a lot of prep. And as you can imagine, it's it's pretty. Uh, pretty information intense but in a very rewarding way otherwise keep looking for podcasts as they come up i'm trying to put them out as quickly as i can but life's about to get real busy with field work and i'm looking forward to that but otherwise here is the tour of a prairie i hope you enjoy it thank you for listening all right so here i am out in the field again I'm at a prairie in oh, what we call the unglaciated plains of Missouri. It's a prairie country in basically southwestern Missouri. And this is oh, an hour and a half west of Springfield, half hour north, just west of Stockton. So Stockton's nearby. But um came out here just to see what was going on, maybe do another audio tour of the prairie uh, maybe you'll hear some of the songs of the birds in the background but anyway seeing a few things as i walk along here instantly out of the vehicle and there's this big patch of indian paintbrush i'll i'll post that i'll try to post as many pictures of the at least the more showy flowers and of course some landscapes with it and that'll be on the blog site, which is thevasculum.blogspot.com. Be photographs and write-ups of a little more detail on them. But yeah, there's also Oxalis violacea here. As I, as I walk in from the parking lot, it looks like half the site has been burned on the east side and on the west side has not been burned this year or whatever. And as I walk around, I instantly see that the tips of the sedges and the grasses are scorched a little bit. The vegetation's only about five inches tall, probably, on average. But the tips of all the grasses are burned. Um, and that's a pretty, pretty sure sign that it was burned while things were emerging. While there was green out here, there were green tips of grasses and forbs in this prairie landscape were burned. So this was burned, and based on that, it was probably mid-March, maybe early March, somewhere around, I guess around the 7th. That's just a rough guess. I often speak out against spring fires, much to my own detriment, and people think I'm a kook. <laughs> but the reason I do that is because what we find is that Spring fires induce sumac. And I'll, I'll take pictures here. I'll get a, I'll do that while I'm talking. Uh, spring fires induce sumac. We have these prairies, remnants really, of what was a vast prairie landscape in Southwest Missouri. And even in the Ozarks. And it's pretty well documented at this point that spring fire does lots of bad things. One of the things it does is it, it induces a seasonality to a flush of nutrients, right? So if you burn in the fall, those nutrients, 
by winter that you release from the fire and the ash and stuff like that, they mostly wash off, leach out of the landscape, especially nitrogen's highly, highly leachable. And then by spring, when things green up, there's not a nutrient flush. Well, if you want to ensure, if you want to induce weediness and decrease diversity, you might look into uh, studies by Dave Tillman on the niche dimension hypothesis, where they take these grasslands in, in Minnesota that are fairly rich. Um, most of them are old field, sort of prey restoration things, but they're fairly rich and they're fairly old and they're pretty stable. And they add nutrients to some of the units, some of them they, they don't. When they add nutrients, they find that productivity goes up, species richness goes down, and in a sense, weediness increases. You basically eliminate species by making them more nutrient rich. It's a common phenomenon. This, the most diverse places, the diverse community types that I can think of are usually really thin soil, really rocky, um, have variations like they're seasonally wet and then dry and there's two two sort of floras coexisting um, in those those temporal seasonal variations so low productivity basically makes it such that more things can coexist because nobody hogs up all the nutrients and the nutrients are limited more things can coexist because nobody can win it's like money there's a ton of money around Somebody's gonna hog it all up to themselves. That's why you know, these patterns repeat themselves in culture um, and in nature. But if the system is naturally poor, where there's a little bit of struggle, there's a little bit of strife, there's two things. You get more biodiversity, and you also get more interaction within those organisms. They, they co-evolve to, you know, we'll, we'll call it help each other in those situations for the benefit of themselves and the benefit of the community. They, what we call, it's called a, uh, an autocatalytic situation where these organisms that start co-evolving together, their behaviors and the products of their behaviors start to feed back into, sorry, I'm gonna try to correct for the wind here. They, they auto-correct back into the system and feed the system in, in, in the sense that what would have been wasted energy in a system of weeds, that wasted energy gets brought back into a useful part of the system. But that takes more than one individual. You can't have individual plants in a system or organisms. This isn't they're life forms. This isn't limited to plants. But it starts with plants. They're the primary producers. If you had just individual plants, so you had 10 species, all of them completely unlinked to each other. If there are species of plants that do not form collective community behaviors, highly evolved species with, a, with, a, with behavioral components that are mediated by other entities around them, then they're just going to be there. They're going to be 10, 10 plants. And eventually, one will overtake the others, and you'll just have decreased richness and functionality in that system. These prairie landscapes, where you have 10 late successional species that are adapted and evolved to low nutrients, have also evolved ways to to back loop the wasted energy into the system, back into the system for the forward momentum of the system, that autocatalytic dynamic of multiple species ascending. You get these emergent behaviors and these ascendant properties within a system, they start functioning, they start gathering together as a directionality. There's a directionality that's selected, you know, this, isn't, this isn't some spiritual force, that's doing this. This is just the force of life. Living systems over time begin to sense each other and begin to work around each other and begin to select for each other within similar dynamics. And then behaviors emerge from those dynamics and the community begins to ascend into a directionality, into a, a shared trajectory of predictable behaviors. And that's, that's all genes are. If you get confused about genetics and all the details and replication, and think of, of, of genes and DNA as 
just the memory banks of the system, how we're behaving based on past events. When we come in and change that and do something that is not in the recipe for how the future is supposed to be for these systems, well then the system starts to crack. That autocatalytic feedback, those emergent properties, they start to break down. The system begins to question its own heritage and its own directionality, and it starts to tailspin. Now there's a whole slew of species, those weedy species that don't depend on ecological systems. They're sort of the, they're sort of the pessimists of the, of the evolutionary world. They bet that, hey, eventually your autocatalytic system is gonna break down, and when it does, I'm gonna be there to fill the cracks. And so when the system starts to break down, you start to lose the conservative species. And in their place, you get weedy species. And those weedy species, they fill that niche ecologically because it happens. Eventually some form of chaos is gonna happen. But what makes it chaos is it's unpredictable. You don't know what type of randomness and disturbance in the force is going to happen, right? So weedy things are by their nature very generalist. If that, if that randomness, if that damage thing starts happening at a regular pace, at a regular tempo over evolutionary time, it's no longer random, it's no longer chaotic, it's predictable, and something will evolve into it and fill that niche more specifically. That's where you get into like in the deep southeastern United States where things move faster, the growing season's longer, the disturbance kind of comes at a regular pace, um, things that would be damaging to systems here in the Midwest are functionally relevant there because the system is attuned to it. They're not random. They're predictable. So a, a spring fire in the Midwest is not a good thing because the system isn't really guided by it, and we can tell that because we start seeing autocatalic systems, these emergent properties, we see them breaking down. We can see that that system is no longer on the trajectory that it once was on, or that, it, that, it's ev that the evolutionary history of the more diverse assemblage of entities of perennial specialist species, their destiny is no longer certain. That same force in Florida is the opposite. If you, if you withhold that or change the, fall, change the burning cycle to the fall down there, that's the damaging effect in that dynamic because that's not how that system functioned, right? And it isn't to say that, that, that out of season fires never happened. They did historically. That's why you have weeds in the system but they happen so randomly and so accidentally that we should never try to induce them. They will happen. Randomness, chaos will happen. I like to tell folks that you, know, you don't need any extra chaos in your life. Neither does nature. It happens, it's there, it's part of the universe. Why would we ever emulate it or induce it in a system? It's an interesting behavior because we can use it in the sense that we have a fescue field, a perennial stable species in a grassland setting, and you want to get rid of it, burn it hot in the spring, burn it when it's at its peak, you'll knock it back. That's good in that scenario because you want that, you want to damage that system. You want to weaken the fescue field so you can replace it with something else. You don't want to do that on an ancient, stable, intact, autocatalytic, emergent, ascendant prairie system? Forget about it, no. I mean, there's no scenario where that makes any sense whatsoever. You know, if it happens accidentally, that's fine. But we should never need to induce those types of species and those types of processes in our remnants, which are less than 1%, less than 10th of a percent in this part of the world, because the entire landscape is full of those, those weeds. I drove, I drove an hour and a half through weedy, beat up, abused, bleeding landscapes. Why would we want to emulate that on this little remnant? So 
that's what we see when we come here. And, and here's an example of that, of that autocatalytic auto system. Let me give you an example of that autocatalytic system, just a real simple one. This is a very simple one, but it illustrates the point. Is when I came in here, I saw, okay, this was spring burned. That's not great. One way I can tell that it's spring burned is, like I mentioned before, the tips of the grasses being frazzled, sizzled. Another way to tell is that in these prairies, in these grassland systems, there's a ubiquitous Carex, Carex umbelata. It's in most of the quadrats when we collect data out here. It's everywhere. It's a little short uh, Carex, and it blooms in mid-February. And by early April, mid-April, it's going to seed, right? So it's everywhere out here. So the fire happens after, after mid-February. The Carex umbelata, this is actually Carex abdita, different story. But the Carex abdita, Carex umbelata, um, it, its flowers get burnt off. Any fire after mid-February, most years, burn off. So I can come out here and start looking at Carex umbelata and say, okay, none of them have fruit. It's a species that, if it's a decent-sized plant, it fruits every year. So when I got out, I started looking around, I found Carex umbelata abdita. I'm just going to start calling it Abdita because that's, that's more accurate. The Carex Abdita out here is all completely sterile. If you look really hard, you can see where, the, where it's all been burned off. But they, they produce their fruits wrapped in perigenia, these little, there's pictures of them online, these little sedge fruits. Right about now, they're ripening up. If I go over to the non-burned side, they all, they're all loaded. I took a picture of those as well so you can see what it looks like. But what, it, what, what Carex abdita and umbelata do is they produce their perigenia right on the ground, right? right in the thatch or above the thatch. And when they mature, they swell up about half the size of a, of a BB. Um, and they get white and they're, they're almost succulent. You take a handful of them, put them in your mouth and mush them around. It's sweet. Ants move them around. Ants use them. I don't know if they're feeding them to their larvae or, or, the, or, or what they're doing, but I, in my own yard where there's a bunch of Carex umbelata and abdita, the day they ripen, they're gone. Like the ants move them that quick. So they're feeding ants. Ants are using these things for something, right? So here's half of this prairie where there's no, there's no Abdita. You know, this is a 200 acre place, so there's 100 acres where all of a sudden there's no Carex umbelata Abdita for these ants to utilize. The other half is, and you think, okay, well that's, you know, one of the, one of the things people like to say is, you just mix it up. You know, one year it's good for the ants, one year it's good for Carex umbelata, one year is good for Carex medii. One year it's good for this. You just keep mixing around this heterogeneity in management and so that nothing ever gets favored. And they say, that way you're, you're not, nature picks winners and losers and you're not favoring anything. Which sounds good on paper. Sounds good inside your head. It sounds good inside your head the way that it sounds good that the sun revolves around the earth. It makes sense in your head in the way that the earth is flat. The things that make sense in our head doesn't mean it's true. When you look at the data, you start seeing you're not picking winners and losers by these damaging management techniques like spring fire. You're picking losers. You're picking the, you're picking the weeds. You're favoring weeds. And one of those, which kind of started this all off, is is wing sumac here in this part of the world, prairie country. Same phenomenon with uh, smooth sumac in, in uh, the Great Plains to the west of us, like Kansas, where it's a more common thing. Same in the Ozarks with mostly wing sumac. What happens is you start favoring the weeds, and the, the mechanism for that weediness is that nutrient flush induces the seeds to germinate in the spring, in the fall, that nutrient flush is washed off. And so whatever seeds of weedy things are in the soil lie dormant. You're also, you're burning living tissue. I see burnt living tissue all around me. 
it's hard to make a living. It's hard to live anywhere. Life is hard, especially in these remnant communities. And so people will scoff and say, okay, you burned two inches of the tips of these grasses. Who cares? Big deal. And, 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 and a, you know, one in, one in 10, there's some, uh, there's some cream indigo, Baptisia brachiata. One in 10 of those gets burnt and weakened in the process. The problem is, like I said, life's hard. You're making it harder for these things to exist. You're losing, you're inducing some scale of mortality. You're inducing some degree of having to compensate for that damage, which weakens the root mass, which makes things more susceptible to fungal infections, viral diseases. I mean, what if it was, what if you hit this pretty hard, most of the species are kind of sent reeling, you're like, ah, they'll recover, but then it's like a super wet or a crazy dry year. They're going to need whatever reserves they would have had otherwise. Again, we don't need that kind of chaos in the system. We don't need to damage things. Uh, Chris Helzer, the prairie ecologist blog page, has a whole article about how we have to damage these things. And I think it literally says you have to beat up prairies to keep them going. And that just that really disturbs me. It's, it's like, you know, spare the rod, spoil the child. Psychology shows you that that's not right. That is not good. You know, abuse is, is rarely excusable. Anyway, back to the autocatalytic dynamic with the Carex abdidumbleta and the ants, right? Ants, there's cool studies. Ants have, have, have long been known that ants move seeds around. There are a lot of ant dispersed myrmecochorus plants, especially spring wildflowers and such. That link's been known for decades, of course. A lot of seeds have a food pocket on them that ants move the seed, they chew the pocket off, they toss the seed somewhere far from the parents, and they feed the food packet to their, to their babies or to themselves. There's a really cool research as dem is demonstrating that ants, because they live in the soil, in the wet ground, their bodies are exposed to fungus and moisture. And so their bodies exude a natural antifungal. And that when they move seeds and they grab a seed and move it, yeah, they're moving it somewhere, but they're also, they're also passing on that antifungal component, that, those molecules, onto it. And that that antifungal component significantly increases the chance that that seed will survive in the landscape. 90% of seeds in, that are in soil are eaten by fungus. Fungus is the biggest seed pathogen there is, right? And so here's the ants moving seeds around of numerous species, at least half of the flora, especially forbs, in this landscape. Ants at some scale are likely moving them around or involved in them. Also, a similar study, I think maybe even the same study, demonstrated that the richer the ant diversity, just their presence in a landscape and the more of them in the landscape just they're being around and walking around in the vegetation induce an antifungal component to the soil and so that there's just a there's less fungus around b when they move the seeds they're giving even more antifungal properties to it and that's just one of thousands of interactions with probably million variations within ranges of functionality in a prairie system like this. So when you come in and you burn 100 acres of the prairie, and one of the most common species, as common in this landscape as little blue stem in this prairie, when you burn all that off and ants are in the middle of that system, they can't travel to somewhere else, you've diminished their food, you've diminished the ant population, in the process the ant population starts falling, then all of a sudden the, the plants whose seeds are dispersed and benefiting from the presence of ants, they start diminishing, and all of a sudden you start weakening the connectivity that each of those plants played a role in, in that system, and all of a sudden the autocatalytic, the ascendant, the emergence, the ecological trajectory of that system, the energy use and efficiency, it starts breaking down. 
you started with eight cylinders, you're running on seven, then six, then five, then four. Now you're starting to smoke. You know, you're sputtering, you're putting down the road. You know, you don't want to do that to a system. Oh, and then right here. Okay, I've been out here, I've been roaming around for yammering my jaws for probably 20 minutes now. Um, and I just stumbled across a violet, Viola sagittata, common prairie species out here. Spring fires destroy violet populations, right? When you destroy and eliminate Viola sagittata from this prairie landscape, the main violet out here, you eliminate the great spangled fritillary, or at least its, its chances of having viable offspring. You eliminate the ants that were probably eating the seeds of the thousands of Viola sagittatas that were out here by spring burning, because violets are germinating early and they're susceptible to, to spring fire. So again, there's another dynamic. All of a sudden the ants are getting hit a little bit harder. The violets are, are getting hit. The great sprangled fritillary is getting hit. All three of those entities and their, their ecological ascendance together, which is a fraction of the system, but emblematic of the system, it starts breaking down. And so that's the kind of things we have to know. You have to know organisms and their interactions to be able to see those things. If you just think, oh, prairie is a thing, a place, and this is what it needs, fire can do no wrong, you're gonna damage it. The simplicity of your reasoning is gonna be reflected in the management and the system is gonna be simplified. The complexity that it takes to manage these systems has to be demonstrative of the complexity that is in these systems. You can't misunderstand them and manage them correctly unless you just get really lucky. And so if you know organisms, if you, if you think of prairie as not a place, if you think of prairie as a process, if you think of prairie as an ascendant congregation of life on a destiny track, on a trajectory of shared evolutionary variables and needs and predictions, well, then you can start to understand how the dynamics at small scales work. But ironically, you kind of got to know the species to know that. If you don't know Carex abdita and you don't know that it's getting roasted in the spring, and you don't know that ants move its seeds around and that ants probably rely on it as a jumpstart of energy for the system that probably helps them survive through the summer. If you don't know that, you're not gonna protect it, right? So again, I'm, I get a bad rap increasingly more so because I keep saying this to people, but nobody has any counter argument. There's no science showing anything otherwise. It's purely this. Spring fire is bad. Here's what science says. Spring fire, spring fire bad. Here's what people who insist that spring fire is good say. I don't think that's right. It's science denying, you know? I mean, I, I, I don't mean to be calling anybody out here, but you gotta call a spade a spade. That's what's going on. That same, the same simplicity of reasoning that gives us science denier and anti-vaxxers, that same simplicity of reasoning, the same erroneous perspective of reality is what is degrading our reality. And this prairie is very much a reality that is magical and beautiful and wondrous. And we, we should not sit back and watch it be degraded by, by just, just plain ignorance and stubbornness when we, we have plenty of evidence to the contrary. Okay, that was a, that was a good half hour <laughs> ramble and rant. Um, as I, as I poked around, but um, I'll post some of the some of the prettier pictures of things I've seen. I started giving a list of what I was seeing. And in the meantime, I've seen a lot. Uh, there's tons of, well, not tons, but there's hypoxis. There's hypoxis or pseuda out here in the burn unit. Um, let me back up a little bit. I get pegged as being anti-fire. No, 
if this was a if this was a moderate to low intensity fall fire or by fall i mean past dormant season by which i mean in this part of the world early november through january if it was that kind of fire out here gosh this place would be this would be so much better and you wouldn't be inducing more uh, sumac and you know people see the sumac and they're like oh we got a sumac problem out here so they the the response lately again this simplistic not really real perception of what is actually happening is well what's broadleaf herbicide we'll wick herbicide all the sumac and it'll be gone and then the sumac the sumac will be gone and the problem solved but the sumac isn't the problem right the sumac isn't the problem and then we start compounding we're, we're doing these anti-autocatalytic dynamics this anti-emergence this anti-ascendance that's destroying these systems so you come in and broadleaf herbicide say you use roundup you wick herbicide which isn't a broadleaf herbicide but say you use roundup um in a, in a wick bar which basically you hold it a couple feet above the ground so it just hits the tall sumac sticking above the prairie itself and you can sort of target in on it let's pretend that it's not dripping and hitting other things too right let's just join that part of the fantasy um when we look at roundup glyphosate we find that it, it chemically alters a, a pathway in plants this is ultimately how it kills it it starves it puts a compound that breaks up the energy pathway of converting light into energy and using it into a system of, of, of using its own energy so it basically starves itself uh, in the process not a biochemist don't claim to be don't know all the ins and outs of this this is just a cartoonish idea of what it's doing but if you look at the the research on glyphosate other things that have that pathway that interrupts bacteria and fungi so bacteria and fungi are also affected by glyphosate they're killed by it essentially so if you're putting this on this plant it gets into the body of the plant including down into the soil through the roots of the plant and expresses itself there it's going to kill what's the backbone of the soil bacteria and fungi you know, so are we simplifying the soil even further? Those, the, those autocatalytic systems, those ancient evolved systems, bacteria and fungi are a deep part of that connection, that connectivity. It's, a, it's, it's the network and drives a lot of those dynamics. You start simplifying that so that only the weedy fung, fungi and bacteria are, are left. Again, you're eliminating dynamics. You're eliminating the autocatalytic emergent ascendant properties that make these systems so special and magic and wonderful and gosh that's got to stop anyway i'm gonna take some pictures there's a couple plants of viola padata tucked in against the rock uh, this prairie is really kind of an anomaly increasingly from here to the south and west in missouri our prairie remnants get more and more coastal plain species in them. And this is kind of right at the northern tip of that zone, I guess, you know, another 20, 30 miles, oh, maybe 50 miles. There's a couple other species. But this prairie that I'm on has a whole bunch of uh, Dicanthelium neuranthum, which is a coastal plain species, comes up the prairies basically comes comes across southern Arkansas and Louisiana into Texas and then back around the southern tall grass through Texas right along the right along the western border of Arkansas goes down the Arkansas Valley into Arkansas between the Wachita's and the Ozarks and then comes up into southern Missouri around and you've got Fayetteville and Rogers Arkansas comes around into that prairie zone and then uh, starts to starts to peter out this is about as far north as we've found dicanthelium neuranthum there's quite a bit of it here not much else in the way of coastal disjuncts but you know those prairies just across the line into arkansas northwest arkansas they've got colic root elytris 
Farinosa. They've got Dicantili and Roanoke Ends. They've got historic, fairly historic. I don't know if anybody's seen them lately, but up until a decade ago, there were sundews and several other, what do they call it, bachelor buttons, is that right? Marshalia, Cespitosa, bunches of it a little further south. That gets into Missouri as well. Um, but again, you know, stressing this, this dynamism point in time and geography, the Dicanthelium neuranthum that is at this place it's probably the most sensitive population that there is because it's on the on the edge of its range so it has a hard enough time existing here and any other disjuncts there's probably disjunct not disjunct but edge of range soil microbes that we don't even know a clue about you start damaging that autocatalytic system at those scales scales we don't even understand and the system's going to break down we can't can't manage these systems this way. So I'm hoping to see some flocks out here. But I'm gonna stop yakking for a while and get some pictures to put up. Alright, I roamed around, got some pictures and saw some interesting things. Some of it not great, not good. Um, and I got to thinking, you know. This is going to be the fifth Nature Site podcast. And so far, I don't do a whole lot of talking about Nature Site. I think the first, first episode was about the general goals of Nature Site. But that autocatalytic system, that emergence, ascendant functionality of these systems that necessitate organismal knowledge, life forms, as they occur, what their diversity is, what it means at very small scales. That's basically Nature Sites' goal. So far, none of these podcasts or even on the Facebook page. We never asked for money, and I'm not asking for money now. Although we do need money. <laughs> what we're trying to get now is just some awareness, right? Like so so thus far the podcast stuff stuff that I put up hasn't traveled really far hasn't gotten around much and i understand that it's not i'm not the best producer in the world i'm not the best speaker in the world um but i think the material is good and again i i think this is a lot of this may be over the top for some people i i i wish those people would challenge themselves and give it a give it a second going over and and understand that they can understand these dynamics. This isn't rocket science. It's common sense. It's common sense with big words, really. But nonprofits need things. We're new. There's a handful of folks that I work arm in arm with a lot. Uh, Andrew Braun, Brett Budock, who's now down in Florida. My wife, Dana Thomas, who does amazing things. And and you know she's she's a botanist and ecologist and loves doing this type of thing and to keep nature site going her job has been the administrative end and i don't know if you've ever seen a seen a botanist balance the books but it's a, it's a it's an agonizing experience she does a great job but it's it's not her forte but she's making that sacrifice to get this information out um, and you know, I'm, I'm appealing to you all on behalf of Andrew, Brett, Dana, myself. Claire Chiffray is a, is a research associate with NatureSite as well. But what's easy for a lot of people to do is to share this information, share the podcast, tell somebody to listen, tell them why it's important, tell them why you think it's stupid. Hey, listen to this idiot. This is ridiculous. Do that. You know, I mean, these are... These are ideas. In human culture, the same autocatalytic dynamics that work in these ecosystems like this prairie work in the ecology of our culture, and they're born out of ideas and concepts and thoughts, and we share them. And some, some replace the old, and some reinforce the old. But if it isn't exposed, if there isn't enough of this carex abdita of an idea in the culture scape, then it's never gonna find ants to move it around. I guess I'm basically asking you guys to be the ants that move around. 
the fruiting bodies of, of ideas and knowledge that nature science is producing so that we can do more of it, so we can push it further, so we can get to the complexity of understanding of this system that it deserves and that it emulates and oozes in the form of beauty and wonderment. In these pessimistic times we live in, gosh, why don't we turn our focus to how nature functions and its dynamism and its trajectory towards truth and reality and try to dispel the, the erroneous ways we perceive it. You know, there's a direct connection there. When we, when we stop perceiving nature wrong, we'll start having a future with nature. That's what, I think that's what environmentalism is originally about, but at a functional scale, at a conscious scale, we have to be the change, but it goes deeper than that. Okay, I'm gonna stop, stop boring you now. But if you move these ideas around, share them with folks, talk about them. I, my wife and I talk about it with our kids and they, they get it instantly. This is some difficult stuff. So, anyway, I'm gonna, I'm gonna walk some more and find some pictures. Oh, there's another burn unit. All right, I'm gonna go over there to be continued. Okay, I'm back. I just can't keep away, and I keep, I'm sorry that I keep rambling, but if anybody's interested in this, keep listening. But if you're sick of my voice already, then, then, then just, you know, turn it off. But there's so many interesting things that I just want to share and have to share while I'm out here. Um, but one thing I want to get back to is the, the, the character Abdida Umbalida mentioned earlier. About two years ago, we kind of sat back on our haunches in the prairie, had our head in a quadrat, sampling vegetation, sat back and I said, you know, this is this this prairie thing is not Carrick's Umbalida. It's not the woodland thing. So we started collecting them and comparing and contrast. We started realizing there's a different thing. There's Carrick's what we call umbal Carrick's Umbalida is two things clearly and at first it was very like i don't know very very low confidence but as we applied it more and looked for more characters and experienced it more questioned who we were at our very core as much as we possibly could and tried to say okay well it's not this this character will fail this character will fail this character will fail and eventually a lot of characters did fail if we selected out the ones that didn't in hopes that we might be left with something at the end or not, whatever the, whatever the truth may lead us to. And in the end, because of all that interaction, we found more characters and better characters. And now there's no doubt whatsoever. The Carex Abdida is different than Carex Umbalida. They're two distinct species. Abdida is more or less the prairie thing, and it's in glades in the Ozarks, which are just xeric limestone prairies, remnants. And then our woodland thing, more acidic soils, is uh, Carrick's Umbalada. And even then, so in the process, we start looking at, well, what is Carrick's Umbalada? And you start realizing, oh, what we thought was called Carrick's Umbalada may be two things, and neither one of them may actually be Carrick's Umbalada in the, in the sense of what the name actually referred to originally. That's what I'm talking about when I'm talking about knowing systems. We have to be able to answer those questions. We're still teasing out off the top of my head, 30, 40 species, a dozen of which are within 500 feet of me here in this, in this prairie that we don't quite get, we don't quite understand. There's dynamics at play here that are extremely informative and extremely relevant to how we manage and understand these systems, how we understand this reality as it's expressing itself, how we understand ourselves and our relationship to it. That's one of the, that's the main reason nature site exists is so we can do this. So we can explore what we're missing in a true, in the true spirit of, of science. Not assuming, okay, we know it all. Oh, I'm out of college now. I don't have to learn anything. No, it's a constant demand upon ourselves to 
understand these things better because we're humbled, we're humiliated when we come out here and try to try to understand them. So, again, if if a lot of this, a lot of the Nature Sight podcast gets rather erudite, I apologize. But we're really pushing the edge here, and we really need supports in the form of of getting the word out that we exist and you think we might be doing something right and we might have some good ideas we find ourselves in this instigatory role we're instigators we're troublemakers but that's not the case we're collaborators we're just trying to not backpedal from what we see in reality it's our own damn fault because we've diverged so far with so much field work that we're kind of we're far enough outside convention that it, a lot of the things we say sound crazy, but it's all perfectly defensible by modern synthesis in ecology and evolutionary theory, which is sad because it's like, well, uh, we take the cutting edge of the theoretical world. A lot of it applies to the applied world, but the applied world is often several decades behind that. We gotta, we gotta bridge that gap. So I've stepped into this other burn unit and instantly it's different. It's twice as tall. You get a good eight, 10 inches of growth here. Not as stunted. Um, there's this old thatch laying around like it's weathered, not, not burnt. The other side was never, there was nothing. It was just dirt and plants. Yeah, you know, that's, that's, that's one of the things we also find with, with really hot fires is you can, you know, soil is organic matter. When you have good soil, functional soil, there's an organic matter there that drives detritivores and the, the whole system. The, the recycling ability of soil and nutrients often is done through its expression of organic matter. You can burn it off. It's like peat moss. It'll burn. It gets hot. You burn it hot enough, dries out. <laughs> Julian Steiermark in the 1930s, 1940s documented, I think I mentioned this in the last podcast, that uh, Julian Steiermark's the patron saint of Missouri botany. Um, he pointed out that the, the people living in the Ozarks, these spring fires, are burning the soil off. And where there were woodlands full of little blue stem are becoming rocky, barren ground with smatterings of poverty oats grass, which is Dantonian spicata for us. We've burned a lot of soil off the Ozarks. Anyway, this was probably a winter burn or a fall burn. And let's, uh, let's, let's find a Carex umbelata. There's a Carex umbelata. Sorry, a Carex abdita. See, I'm still doing it myself. Yeah, clearly. Yep. So I'll take a picture of this one. This one's in burned soil. You'll see just bare, bare soil behind it. And you'll see here's Carex abdita with perigenia still on because it wasn't burned. So the, the, this flowered in February. So whatever burn this landscape happened before February, which is a good time, good fire. There's good fire and there's bad fire. Nobody wants to believe that, but until we do, we are not, we are not actually preserving these landscapes on their ecological trajectory. But this spot still has a horrible sumac issue from previous spring fires, I promise you. I did a, I did a talk and John Oliver, who's on the board of Nature Site, he videoed it and put it on, on YouTube. But it's a YouTube video of me talking about the dynamic of, of spring fire and then the sumac issue. Um, it's a YouTube video. I'll put a link on the blog post with the pictures associated with this audio. Um, uh, that's a, and I think there's already a link on the on the blog at, at thevasculin.blogspot.com. Um, yeah, here's a patch that didn't even burn. That's great. You know, little little patchy fire, and there's stuff blooming in it, just as happy as can be. Yeah, and the sumac, God, well, has a whole nother issue. I don't know if you ever get rid of it.
Yeah, coming back with more info about this fall burn, or winter burn, dormant burn area. There's violets around in here, quite a few of them. Two violet agitatas on the other side and a couple padatas. But there's, there's quite a bit of violet agitata in this zone. So either it hasn't been hit super hard. Yeah, who knows? Maybe there's twice as many 10 years ago. I've been to this, this, this prairie. I've been here. I started coming here 15 years ago, and there was not. These problems did not exist. This place was amazing. Um, I, it's one of the... It's one of the reasons I think we should listen to, to organismal biologists that have known sites for long periods of time, because these places change, especially when it's damaging change. They change quickly. If you've only been doing this stuff for five years, the place you went to first may look like it did. They talk to somebody that was there 20 years ago and they'll tell you it was, it was a lot different. Hopefully it's uh, gotten better. But I'm gonna, I'm gonna be honest with you. That is rarely the case. Places I've been, places I've gone to for, for 20 years. Whew, there are very few success stories. And, and one of the, one of the shining examples, and I'll give a loud shout out to the Missouri Prairie Foundation, and to some extent, the Missouri chapter of the Nature Conservancy. But the Missouri Prairie Foundation has pretty much done winter fall burns on their properties. And they've always done sort of low to moderate intensity fires because they have relied on volunteer staff and they didn't have massive amounts of equipment and they didn't have people that needed to be home for dinner and they didn't have to worry about can't burn because it's deer season like that should be a factor and in the process missouri prairie foundation prairies are just spectacular they're as good as they were if they're better than they were 20 years ago so it's it's nice to see that i'm not just crazy and being a pessimist about things or bitter about something there are shining examples of systems increasing in their emergence in their autocatalytic these are old hay prairies and they're all kind of moving out of this dynamic um, i wrote a report on it called the uh, pennsylvania prairie report i think it was 20 12 maybe anyway it's on their website they're all the reports of their prairies that we've collected data on and we started discovering this dynamic that we call the floristic integrity curve um where we can map sites on this curve i'll do a whole podcast on it i'm not going to get into it now but we can we can we can check and see what the trajectory of these systems are on this curve whether they're degrading whether they're increasing in ecological function prairie foundation has been receptive of that bruce shooty is their 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 science director and he's he's top notch and bruce god bless him has given some credence to the dynamics we've been seeing because bruce is an organismal guy he's a field guy and he's like yeah and he knows these systems and he's he's been doing this stuff for longer than i have oh wait oh yeah there's a there's some uh hoary pacoon and if you're like me it's one of the first wildflowers you ever learn but you still get excited about it i'll take a picture of that just for funsies all right, walking some more here, walking down the trail, actually headed out of the site. Um, wanted to make a final, one final comment. Some things I saw. Oh, there's some sort of Kathy on, oh, sorry, Primula media. Uh, <laughs> that's a separate point, but I'll make it too. They're synonyms, right? You can call something Dodecathy on media. You can call it Primula media. They're, they are synonyms. Both are correct. So don't feel bad. As I walked around, as I did a sort of a final loop through here, I was looking at morphologies of different things. There's a few Lespedizos coming up, and Rubus, some of the remnants of Dicanthelium. And one thing we consistently see when we work in these landscapes that have had damaging effects, uh, what we find is that closely related species, they'll start hybridizing rampantly, that when you damage or otherwise shake the foundation of those autocatalytic dynamics in these systems the gene systems also rattle in these systems they they open up they open up their genetics such that they outcross rampantly so rampantly 
that if there's a closely related species to it, they'll often cross that barrier. So they're, they're in stable ecological settings. And when, it, when a site is ecologically stable and, and in that autocatalic orchestra of dynamics, when it's functioning at full capacity or what it can, given what life throws at us all, when it's in those, those stable states, the best evolutionary strategy is to self-reproduce, is to not outcross with other members of your species. So a lot of species, most, uh, especially late successional, stable, long-lived perennials, they primarily self-reproduce, right? This is all very well documented, but it's sad how, how few people understand this dynamic or even know it exists. When you damage that system, even a little bit, the proportion to which you damage that system determines the degree to which individuals seek to outcross and, and keep the genetic diversity mix, right? So a, it's, a, it's, it's a fascinating and amazing process. It's one of those deeply emergent evolutionary ecological phenomena that borders on I don't want to say supernatural, but it's magic. Magic in the sense that, you know, I know there, there was a rabbit in the hat before, but it's still cool to see it pulled out of a hat. I didn't think there was, right? Um, but that process, a deep ecological, those deep evolutionary genetic dynamics as they express in behavior are so deep that they're tuned to the degree of stability within a system such that you damage it a little bit and it'll it'll start it'll go from five percent outcrossing to you know 20. i'm just guessing here it's fun right violets are classic violets often produce the bulk of their seed and way down in the base they don't even make showy flowers or they're, they're, they're cleistogamous flowers without petals way down in the thatch that's 90 percent of the seeds that a violet, most violets, produce. Well, at least the, the basal-leaved violets, I should say. And when you see the showy flower, a lot of times those don't even develop into seeds or, or not very much. And when they do, even those are self-fertilized flowers. As a, they're not made through meiosis, they're made through mitosis, essentially. Through various, there's various ways it can be done. Anyway. <laughs> When you damage them, those flowering upright stems, they'll outcross at dramatically higher levels, depending on the damage, by essentially releasing the genetic barriers to accepting DNA that is more different than their own DNA, right? They can control the scale of that, the degree to which it breeds with something that is different than it. That can be blown open so wide that if there's a closely related species nearby and the damage is severe enough, they will openly hybridize. The result of that is also another fascinating topic. If you're into it, if you're a sciencey sort of geek, look into uh, the process of integration or read the book Plant Speciation by Vern Grant from 1970-something. One of the best botany book in the world. Just so full of functional dynamism and systems. Anyway, so when you come into a system and you start seeing evidence of hybridization, you can bet dollars to donuts that something bad happened. Those uh, hybrids often don't persist for long unless the damage keeps happening, right? The damage keeps happening and it'll just keep going further and further. We've seen entire, entire populations of two distinct species in prairies swamp completely. 10 years later, there's, there's no, none of the parents are left and all that you have are the F1s stabilized. Well, they're not F1s. They restabilize. The F1s will be, will be partially sterile, but they can back cross functionally with either parental so you get these F2 restabilizing systems. It's, it's, it's a form of speciation before our eyes, but it's chaos. It's not the evolutionary history 
of the system. If it were, then those stable F2 hybrids would be the species that we find in these systems. So anyway, as I walk out, this isn't just observational. I don't like the way all these sumacs look. This isn't me being picky. I think there used to be more of this and data shows that there were, and now there's more weeds than there are conservative species. Not even that, it's also the species that are here are finding so little relevance of their evolutionary destinies that they're outcrossing to try to try to get at what is actually happening now. You know, if we wanna if we wanna push systems on these novel trajectories, then you know, maybe we should just openly say we're not managing for ecological function. We either need to say we're not managing for ecological function, we're managing for human convention and for human convenience. Then we should say that. But we shouldn't be doing what's convenient and conventional and saying that it's ecologically relevant. You know what I mean? So it's, it's a matter of how honest we are about what we're, we're really doing. Anyway, I'm taking off. I might hit another site. Uh, I'll send you some pictures of the site in general. And uh, keep following Nature Site Podcast and get the word out. We, uh, we got to stop this dynamic before it gets so far gone. We don't even know what used to be here. Once reality slips away from us, we got nothing left, right? So help us hang on to reality. Take care. So that's it. That's episode number five. Hope you enjoyed a tour of the prairie, some of the ecological dynamics that interplay and crescendo into these magical systems and some of the biological relationships that are consequence of how we affect processes. We affect change. In fact, I was just just reading recently a great book called A Third Window by Robert Ulanowicz. Uh, it's a great book, great read if you're into ecology. But one of the things he mentions that in engineering and in physics, they talk about stability, systems being in a state. You have states of systems, and you have systems in transition or in periods of change, called, and those are called processes. So the difference between state and process are objective in management and stable, dynamic, old-growth systems is to maintain the state. And when we damage them, we start inducing processes of change that may or may not be desirable in those systems. Again, a lot of this is all scale-dependent, of course. But anyway, hope you enjoyed that. Uh, Keep watching out for episode number six. will be out hopefully in the next couple of weeks. And... Thanks again for listening to the Nature Sight Podcast. Thank you for listening to the Nature Sight Podcast.